more in a classroom setting. Um, and then we're going to look at that day. Do you really believe that there is a day, that, that it is true since Jesus died and rose again, that I, I daydream when I look at clouds, and clouds are magnificent. Sunny days are fantastic, but I can't imagine a world without clouds. Um, we see the, the paintbrush of God across the sky, and we see those threatening to storm, threatening to be clear, and those rays of sun that pierce through the clouds and light up an area on the ground. And I often wonder, is that what, that's what it's going to look like when the sky opens up, when Jesus stands with his arms open and says, come up here. What will that day be like? Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, your apostle to me is the Apostle Paul. Every apostle is for me, um, but he is defined by your son as the apostle to me. And he extends and explains and surrounds the truth of meeting your son personally with every word in scripture that he writes. Help us to grasp it beyond the hope and the comfort that lies ahead for us. But help us to grasp the truth of meeting our Savior with the burden of our lost neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to take some apologetics this morning. We're going to do what the Apostle Paul, what Peter, what John, what Philip, what Stephen did throughout the book of Acts is everywhere they went, I want to prove to you that Jesus rose from the dead. I want to prove to you that Jesus rose to the dead. God, everything God says is true, and he proved it by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, our testimony shouldn't be a lot different than the apostles. So the apostles had access. Um, the apostle Paul, for example, by the time he is writing um, 1 Corinthians 15, he's had about probably eight years or more access to the Gospel of Matthew. In his case, it would have been eight important years to him. Matthew was scripture to Paul. By the time Paul wrote scripture, Matthew had been scripture, and Paul starts writing the book of Galatians and aligning the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ and having access to the Gospel of Matthew as he is writing. Unlike 1 Corinthians, Matthew is for me, but it's not to me. When Paul writes to me, he explains how Matthew is to me. So we're going to take 10 points of apologetics to prove the resurrection of Jesus Christ that would have to be answered or refuted by a world who accepts or rejects Jesus Christ. Reasoning was the primary tool of the apostles as they witnessed and testified to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to look in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to take point number one, the testimony of Jesus, and only take a brief look at it because his whole life and his 
whole account in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the opening verses of Acts is the testimony of Jesus. But we drop down in Matthew chapter 20 to verses 18 and 19. Actually, let's begin in 17. Jesus is approaching his death. You'll see in chapter 21, Jesus riding in on Palm Sunday. We're near the end of that chapter in verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took his 12 aside and said to them, just, just picture this real event Matthew is accounting in his own memory and by the power of the Holy Spirit they're walking towards Jerusalem and Jesus takes them aside and he walks off and there's no one around and he sees to that and he says to them in verse 18 we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Religion, skeptics, antagonists, and those who are hostile to the gospel all believe that what Matthew is writing here and quoting Jesus is accurate. In other words, no one doubts that a follower of Jesus named Matthew quoted Jesus as saying, I'm going up to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over, they're going to crucify me, and I'm going to raise on the third day. Paul is referring to Matthew along with Psalm 16 and other places when he is prophesying this. Turn to John chapter 2. We're just making a pretty quick point of Jesus' testimony of his real life. We're going to go back in John chapter 2 basically to the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he said the same thing in a unique way in verse 19 of John chapter 2. In refuting the religious leaders, he says to them, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. We won't go to the end of the gospel of Matthew, but they, they denied that they knew what he was talking about here and it is clear that they did understand what he was talking about because they go to Pilate and they say, he said he was going to die and raise on the third day. So help us secure the tomb so that they can't steal his body and say so they're actually supporting and strengthening the testimony of the re resurrection of Jesus by having a Roman squadron of soldiers secure the stone so that it cannot be moved and then stand guard over the tomb for more than three days. They're strengthening the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Verses 5 and 6. We will do this quickly, but, but I will explain the significance of verse 5. 
Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know you. We don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus responded, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the answer is what we're familiar with, that the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. He makes the claim here, I'm the way. He makes the claim here, I am the truth. And he makes the claim here, I am life. No religion, no person, not Joseph Smith, not Muhammad, not Buddha, not anyone makes any of these claims. Only Jesus Christ. Verse 5 is significant because this is the most important chapter in the Bible in the evangelizing of the country of India. Thomas, who doubted until he saw Jesus, was so moved by the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he is the most famous missionary to the country of India. This, um, as we turn in the same chapter to verse 19, as I hear Ravi Zacharias' testimony and and the people in India who are descendants of those who were led to the Lord by Thomas cross paths with Rabbi Zacharias, who is studying to be a Hindu priest and is so distraught with the reality that he doesn't measure up to be in the highest sect of the Hindus in India, that he attempts to take his life Someone brings him John 3.16 and, and he, is, he is drawn to that. He's intrigued by it, but he's not understanding it. Someone brings a Bible who follows this trail from Thomas to him and reads to him the words we just read that Thomas questioned. Everyone in India knows who Thomas is. And Thomas asks the question and Ravi Zacharias on his deathbed in ICU Here's these words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And his mother, who in very broken English is trying to read this English King James Bible given to her by a missionary, is reading through John 14. And what strikes him in his tracks, in his bed, is this statement made by Jesus Christ to, in that case, Ravi Zacharias, who has just escaped suicidal death. Verse 19. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. And here's the statement. Because I live, you also will live. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And because I live eternally, you will live. Because the cross will not end my life, sin doesn't have to end your life. So when he was asked to do his mother's funeral by his dad, not too long after that, this young apologist, now Ravi Zacharias, his dad says, what should we put on the tomb? Because I live, also will live because his mother was the first in his family to believe in Jesus Christ 
um, real quickly, many years later, he only knew his grandmother until he was five years old and didn't really know her by memory very well at all. And his wife, Robbie's wife, Margie, wanted to go into his history for a lot of reasons. So they actually found where they believe the graveyard was, where his mother was buried, and they actually started to locate where they believe her grave was, and they began removing dirt and removing dirt. And Robbie says at one moment, she, Margie grabs his arm and says, Look! And on her tomb, it says, Because I live, you also will live. This has a, there's deep roots to this John 14 in the country of India, or in India that have been long since lost. Turn to Acts chapter 1 as Luke is impressing on us in the opening of this Acts of the Apostles book. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. We're taking a brief look. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, every word here is intentional, while he was eating with them, fully resurrected bodily, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. He's talking about that gift in John chapter 14. When Thomas asks that question, he is explaining to them that the Holy Spirit will come and that he will go, he will be crucified. And Luke said he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He did raise from the dead. For 40 days he made, there are 10 appearances listed in the Bible. He went was seen, would have been seen by thousands of people, but at least 500 witnesses, Paul said, saw him at one time. So witnesses had made their way to Corinth. There are so many people that saw, touched, hugged, ate with, realized, testified to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I just want to go through some apologetics real quick and we'll get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Actually, let's go to Acts chapter 17 before we leave here where Paul is testifying in Athens, Greece to the, the stargazers and the worshipers, the Areopagus, the, the main thinkers, the, the high-level astrologers of the day. Acts chapter 17 and he's talking about between Adam and the law and Christ. So he's concluding that discussion in verse 30 of Acts chapter 17. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Can you come to God without repentance? No. Luke, Luke chapter 24, verse um, about 43, I believe, he says, Jesus says in the Great Commission, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached to the whole world. Paul says 
in many places in Acts. And here's one of them. He says in chapter 20, he says, I command people to repent. In chapter 26, he says, King Agrippa, he said, I want you to know that every kind of people, everywhere I go, I tell them that they must repent and turn from their sins to God and then demonstrate their repentance by their good deeds. It's an important aspect. Verse 31, for he has set a day where he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Now listen to this. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Who is everyone? Everyone. If anyone ever lives since the day Jesus came out of the tomb and they want proof, it's there. It's findable. It's beyond reasonable. If Jesus is put on the witness stand, he will be proven to have risen from the dead. Some of the other things that can be used that, that we don't think about is the variances in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Things where people like C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell and J. Warner Wallace who are thinkers, they're reasoners, they're prove it to me, prove it to me, prove it to me. If you put Jesus on trial, one of the first things to an attorney that would jump out at them is that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't tell the exact same story the exact same way. In fact, J. Warner Wallace, who is often on Dateline because he is the most famous cold case attorney in history, United States. I'm not saying he's the best or not, but he's the most famous. So whenever they would have a cold case on Dateline, he would be the speaker on there. But he says, as soon as you have two witnesses tell the same story, you know they collaborated. It is impossible for two people to tell the same story. So the fact that John says, and I saw this, and I noticed this, and Matthew doesn't say that, but Matthew says, I also saw this, and Mark says, Peter said to me that he saw this, and Luke says, in my research, they saw this. The way that the story comes together is valuable evidence to the resurrection of Jesus. Anyone who is doing a proof study will realize that. Fulfilled prophecies. It is known and it is recognized that the Old Testament was written before the New Testament happened. Everywhere Jesus went, everything he did, he fulfilled verse after verse after verse. So when Jesus would say something, he would both quote the Old Testament. When Jesus opens up Isaiah 63 and he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to set the captives free. He's not only reading scripture, but he's fulfilling that verse. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. John the Baptist saw the Spirit come on Jesus. So when he's reading that, it's recognizable to that audience that Isaiah was writing about him. When he went to the cross, so many things happened, one thing after the other. So many things that were fulfilled by people who did not believe in Jesus. One of the psalmists prophesied Judas betraying him. Another psalmist 
prophesied that they would cast lots for his clothes. Another psalmist, or actually Zechariah, prophesied that they would pierce him. Another psalmist says that none of his bones would be broken. And on and on and on and on. These are people making decisions in real time in Jesus' life that were prophesied, and the people doing these things are against him. Nobody wants to fulfill this. So, fulfilled prophecies. When you read the Gospel of John, read chapter 18 and 19. He did this to fulfill Scripture, John says. He did this to fulfill Scripture. When he cried out from the cross and they gave him gall mixed with wine, he's fulfilling a verse in the Psalms. And they're fulfilling it by giving it to him. One after another, there are over a hundred prophecies just pointing to the cross that are written about in the Psalms and in the prophets, which were written long before him, that no one could arrange. He can't convince the Pharisees to do what they would do. He can't convince Pilate to do what he would do. He can't convince the soldiers to do what they would do, but they all did exactly what the scriptures said. Number four, historical accounts. There are no historical accounts that disagree with the life of Jesus Christ. There are perspectives on following him or not, but they testify. There is no scholar, no one anywhere that says that Jesus didn't live, didn't walk this earth, isn't the person written about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and isn't the person testified to in the rest of the New Testament. Number five, eyewitness testimony. Again, so many accounts in the scriptures, so many people went out. 500, Paul says, at one time, Jesus was in a place where 500 of his witnesses saw him, interacted with him, and went out and testified above him. So there's only two perspectives from enemies and followers of Christ. Followers of Christ say they're all saying the same thing. It's true. Enemies of Christ, they're all saying the same thing. They believe it's true. They're both telling the truth. Ten appearances listed to eyewitnesses in the Bible. Number six, the principle of embarrassment. This is, a, again, putting Jesus on the stand is an important principle. In the Gospel of Matthew, the things happening that fulfill prophecy, why would Matthew say that when they arrested him, Matthew ran? Why would Matthew say when they arrested him, we all fled? Zechariah, it says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Why would Mark, who has Peter as his primary witness, write that Peter denied Jesus three times? Why would Luke give so many eyewitness testimonies of the failures of the disciples if it weren't true? go all the way to the top. No author on earth during this time would write down 
time that a woman couldn't testify in court, couldn't get an education, was not valued in any society, why would God choose to have a woman proclaim his resurrection? And more importantly, why would Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John admit it if it wasn't true? principle of embarrassment. Number seven, key skeptics converted. We just talked about Thomas. He was converted through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The two primary ones are James, Jesus' brother, who would give his life for belief in the resurrection of his brother, who he didn't believe in before the resurrection. Why would he give his life for that? Paul will refer to that when we get into 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is the primary chief skeptic. Paul was on a road to arrest followers of Christ when he saw the resurrected Christ. And he stopped in his tracks and lived every moment to the guillotine proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who would do that? Why would he do that? The testimony of skeptics. Number eight, hostile accounts. People like Tacitus, who lived during the life of Jesus, who was a Roman historian. Guess what? You can find the story of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus inferred to his historical accounts. Josephus is a Jew who did not believe in Jesus, who lived shortly after Jesus. And again, you find testimony after testimony in Josephus that the Gospels are accurate, that Jesus did die, and his believers followed him after he rose from the dead and testified to him. Number nine, the empty tomb is, from a forensic standpoint, tomb that everyone wants to find the body in, the body is never found. Finally, we have the embarrassment of riches of the scriptures. There is no history book that undermines this history book. And this history book goes through humanity like no book in history. There are over 508,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament of the life of Jesus Christ of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, of the death of Jesus Christ, the burial of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ. Over 5,800 copies. If you get into the Greek and the Syriac and all of the others, there are about 66,000 manuscripts of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the time you get into about the 100 years after Christ, 200 years after Christ, there are over 2 million references in writers to the accuracy of the Bible. We have an embarrassment of riches in the Bible. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul is telling us the gospel 
by establishing the proof and the necessity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been in this chapter for probably close to a couple of months by now. We have studied much of it. Much of it comes in, in different forms and attaches to Genesis and many other places. So we are going to take from a few places that we haven't studied yet. We're going to zero in on the rapture itself today. But first we are going to begin in verse 29. Paul has been establishing for the first 28 verses that, look, if there isn't a resurrection of Jesus, we're wasting our time. Verse 29, now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? There are over 200 explanations for this verse, and I will tell you, tell you honestly that I don't know exactly what this verse means. But I do know, and you can tell it from the content, that he is referring to people who believe that if I get baptized for someone that I love that is past, that I will rejoin them. So whether it is people in the church in Corinth that believe I better get baptized or I better get saved so that I can see my loved one, Paul is, spends no time there, so I won't spend time there either. He shifts immediately in verse 30 to the apostles and to us as believers. So similarly in verse 29 to the Sadducees saying to Jesus, explain to us if seven people marry the same woman at the resurrection, Jesus says, you don't even believe in the resurrection. Your question's flawed. And he explains the resurrection very similar to that verse 29 in 1 Corinthians 15. We move on to verse 30. And as for us, in other words, followers of Jesus, believers in the truth, apostles in this case, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? That's a legitimate question. They all did. Most of them gave their lives. And they would not let go of seeing the resurrected Jesus Christ. So Paul says in verse 31, I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So you're real close there if you turn over to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We can see what Paul is referring to when he talks about wild beasts in Ephesus. Did it involve torture and animals like they did in Rome? I don't believe so, but it was bad. He talks about in Asia there, so Ephesus is in Asia. And he writes here in verse, not, or verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 1, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Paul was convinced he was going to die. Verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but this happened 
that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's making the same point in both of these chapters. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I wouldn't have done that if Jesus hadn't raised from the dead. I despaired for my life there. I was willing to die there because Jesus rose from the dead. I wouldn't have put my life on the line there if I didn't believe I would raise from the dead. And then he says something very practical in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, look, I would have done the opposite of all of those things. I would have partied, lived, got what I could get out of this life if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. He said, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's live like the world wants us to live if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And then he gives a command. And Paul is, this is important. So think about these verses. He's inside the church. And he says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought. Stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. This sounds out of place here, except for the fact that the entire book of 1 Corinthians has had this theme. From 1 Corinthians 1 all the way through, Paul is telling something that's a difficult message in a sermon to stay away from believers who aren't faithful. In 1 Corinthians 5, he really drills this home. He says, if people are living for the world, he says, have nothing to do with them. And in case there's a question, the next few verses, Paul says, I'm not talking about the lost. If there are people, Paul says, who profess to believe Jesus Christ and they don't follow him with their life, Stay away from them. John says in 1 John, don't even have them in your home. That's harsh. But in verse 33, Paul tells us why bad company corrupts good character. It is more likely that a lukewarm Christian will make a faithful Christian lukewarm than it is the other way around. So Paul tells Timothy over and over again, find people who are reliable. Look for people who are reliable. Stay in fellowship with them. If the world does what they do, Paul says, don't run from them. Share Christ with them. But if a person says, I believe in Jesus Christ, and they live like the world, Paul says, stay away from them. Avoid them. I say this to your shame, Paul says at the end of verse 34, meaning this is happening in the church in Corinth. Let's drop down to verse 48. As we're moving towards the rapture, the, the, the pinnacle of a person's relationship to Jesus Christ in the age of the church. We remember these verses in verse 48 when we studied Adam, the first Adam, 
and the second Adam. Paul goes into that extensively in Romans chapter 5. And Paul picks, we'll pick it up here in verse 48. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as was the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. So Dave was referring to John chapter 6. Jesus is defining having a relationship with him as going from the first Adam, flesh, to the second Adam, spirit. Spirit gives life. So in John chapter 6, verse 16 and 61, he says, the flesh counts for nothing. The spirit gives life. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and not flesh. So the flesh is Adam. And following Jesus brings it, us into a spiritual, eternal life with God. So he says in verse 48, As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. A physically, fleshly body, lost, born in original sin, as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven, like Christ. When we follow Christ, we will ultimately be like Christ at the rapture. And Paul is building to that. Verse 49, And just as you were born in the image of earthly man, the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. John says again, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, What love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. What we will be is not yet known, but we know that when we see him, we will be like him. He is undoubtedly referring to 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul says what we see now is blurry and it's like looking in a foggy mirror but when we see him we will be like him. It has always been the plan of God to give free will, to know the results, to have to go to the cross and have the power in his plan that we would be like Christ one day. His purpose is to make us like Christ now his fulfillment is to make us look just like him one day and Paul and John Paul defines it and John thinks on it what love the father has lavished on us that he would do all of this for us verse 50 he writes I declare to you brothers and sisters that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We cannot meet God in our first Adam bodies. Paul explains in Romans, you have to be born physically to be born spiritually. Paul explains in Romans and 1 Corinthians 15, the physical conception has to happen first. The spiritual recreation happens second. The body that is the result of physical conception cannot enter heaven. We are born, the reason John 3.16 says that whoever believes in Jesus shall not be condemned but have eternal life is because in that moment that we believe, we step into eternal life, meaning everything that God has planned is in motion and it will all be realized. And Paul is building in momentum as we are considering these 
things here from Adam to Christ, from death to life. The scriptures define this, especially Paul, over and over again. Now Paul talks about that moment. That moment that the sky will open. This um, We're studying through the law in men's ministry and we will put in order the feasts of God. In Leviticus chapter 23, there are seven primary feasts and we have from Passover, which Jesus fulfilled on the exact hour of the exact day that Moses gave it. The unleavened bread, exact day. First fruits, exact day. The, the feast of weeks, exact day. The next one on the calendar is Rosh Hashanah, which is the beginning of their year, which this year will be in September 18th through the 20th. receiving communion today when a Jew studies the feasts and they come to Rosh Hashanah Rosh Hashanah is the beginning of 10 days of reflection and repentance Jews that believe in Jesus Jews that don't believe in Jesus that's Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur reflection repentance introspection, repentance. That's what these days are to the Jew. The judgment seat of Christ to the coming at the end of the tribulation, the rapture to the second coming. Ten days on the Jewish calendar. It is likely that Jesus will come on Rosh Hashanah for us and it is certain that he will come on Yom Kippur at the end of the tribulation. Jews believe that 5,800 and I believe 70 years ago that Adam and Eve were created on the first Rosh Hashanah. So they believe that the sixth day of creation is the beginning of the book of life. So if you study a Jewish study on this, they believe that on Rosh Hashanah the book of life is opened up. And they believe on Yom Kippur that the book of life is closed. For a Jew it is. So if you read Ezekiel chapter 20, Matthew chapter 25, that is the judgment described for Jews primarily. So they have 10 days, and, and this isn't all biblical, I'm telling you what Jews believe. Rosh Hashanah is real, Yom Kippur is real, we will experience them both. They are next on the list of God's fulfilling of feasts, all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The last one will be the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the celebrating into the Promised Land and the Exodus of Egypt into Canaan with Joshua whose name is the same as Jesus ultimately pointing to our into the millennium under Jesus Christ all of these are going to be fulfilled but Jews will be thinking beginning on Friday evening on the 18th of September of this year they will be introspective 
they will be bowed down, those who are true um, Jewish Bible believers, whether they believe in Jesus or not, and they will be repenting for their sins. Um, hopefully, there will be more and more of them repenting to their Messiah for their sins. So Paul is talking about this feast or this day of the trumpet, this opening of heaven to receive the church. Verse 15. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We looked at this weeks ago in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that those who do sleep, those who have died, will be raised first. Paul is telling them here, we will not all sleep, meaning the rapture will come before the end or before the things following the church. The rapture will be the end of the church, so there will be people alive when he comes. So he says it this way, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Changed what? Verse 49, into the image of the heavenly man. So if we go, went to Romans 8, verse 30, we see predestination. The predestination is to be, Romans 8, 29, to be conformed into the image of Christ. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. For those he predestined, or those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. That's going to happen. He wants it to be happening now. So he works for the good of all things right now, and the good is to be made more like Christ. And then he takes it all the way through, just so you know, Paul says, that once you have entered into eternal life, he says those who predestined, he also called, those he called, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. Paul is speaking of all of those things in past tense. He's including the rapture in that statement. He has predetermined your glorification. What you need to do is choose to repent. And if you do repent, he is predetermined to call you into his family, to justify you from all your sins, and to glorify you into a body like Jesus Christ. This is amazing grace that Paul says he commands people everywhere to repent. When you repent of your sins, make Jesus, the, the sign that I always see in Wisconsin that changes, they're all biblical verse, so the verse on there now is Romans 10, 13. Believe it. Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He has just said that in Romans 10.9. Again in the Greek, Romans 10.13 says, everyone who calls on Kyrios, the names always matter. Not everyone who calls on the name of Messiah or Savior or Jesus. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Master, Kyrios, Adonai, Abraham, 
approaches God in fear and says, Adonai, Yahweh, how are you going to do all this? He says, I'm going to show you the stars again and remind you of that. I'm going to promise you that you are going to have a son through Sarah. Your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore, and I will bless all nations through you. Adonai, Yahweh, said that to Abraham. Abraham says, I believe you. Genesis 15, 6, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Isaiah chapter 6, he sees Jesus on his throne, John 12, 41. He, he is humbled by him and it says he saw Adonai on his throne. He is confessing to Adonai. Jesus came as Yeshua, Lord of salvation. He must be confessed as Adonai, Master. And Paul is saying here, and he says in Romans chapter 8, once he is your master and you've acknowledged his payment for your sin, you have been predestined, called, justified, and glorified as a finished work in that second. And Paul is talking about the moment in time that Romans 8.30 is fully realized as he is Verse 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed into our glorified bodies. Verse 52, in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, Rosh Hashanah is the feast of trumpets. For the trumpet will sound, the trumpet that John says, I don't know exactly what this is, so I'll say the same thing. He says, it, it's, it's, it sounds like the voice of the archangel, and it sounds like the voice I had heard back in Revelation chapter 1, and I'm hearing it now, and I'm being caught up to heaven. Whatever that sound exactly is, it will be the sound in which the skies will open, and every believer will be in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, in the presence of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying we're not all going to die before this happens. Paul is saying it's imminent now almost 2,000 years ago. So it's absolutely imminent in 2020. In a flash in a twinkling of an eye the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound the dead will be raised same order here. We're not all going to sleep but the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality when the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality then the saying that is written will come true death has been swallowed up in victory where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Quoting from Hosea, which we studied in church builders a couple weeks ago. Verse 56. The sting of death is sin. Think of the importance apologetically that points to a problem in the world. 
For all have what? Sin. I'm not that bad a person. Have you seen my neighbor? I heard this apparently true story about these two horrible um, mob-like people that lived in the city and they asked a, a Bible-believing preacher to preach and preside over his funeral and he, he refused to do it. And he offered him so much money and he insisted and threatened him and he said, you must say in the funeral that he was a good person. So he did. And he preached over his funeral. And in the middle of the procession, he said, compared to his brother, he's a good person. The point is here that the message over our body is decided by faith in Jesus Christ. Where, O oh death, is your sting? Where, O oh death, is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The reality and the problem the world has is for all have sinned isn't the whole verse. The standard is in the verse. The glory of God what every human being is compared to. We need to be able to define the whole verse to the world so that they're not compared to me. They're not compared to a really good person. They're compared to the glory of God. So Paul says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. What wonderful words describing in Colossians chapter 1 that the law stands between us and God and when we trust in Christ and announce him and proclaim him as master the law is torn aside so the power that has over us is gone when we believe in Jesus Christ the fulfiller of the law verse 57 but thanks be to God in response to the wages of sin, in response to the glory of God, in response to what the law says that I am as a person. Thanks be to God, exclamation mark. He gives us victory through Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's his full name, Kyrios, Savior, Messiah. That's who Jesus is. That's his first middle and last name his first name is Adonai master ruler his second name is Lord of salvation and his third name is prophet priest and king anointed that's who Jesus Christ is that's his name verse 58 therefore my dear brothers and sisters stand firm let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, to the work of Kyrios. Because you know that your labor in the Lord, and there's that name again, is not in vain. Which of the three do we think of when we serve? Well, you should think of all of them. There's, there's no problem with that. But he's using the name Master. 
When you see Jesus described as master in the New Testament, you will find out that's an interpretation of kurios. So when you see the word Lord, Lord and master mean the same thing. Sovereign, authority, ruler over everything. So Paul asks us, confess him as sovereign over you because that part is up to you. And if you do that, you'll be called, justified, and glorified. It's a done deal. Hebrews chapter 7, he is the guarantor of all of this. And he will make it happen. Paul says in verse 58, the reason I told you all of this is so that you will stand firm. He, in a sense, tells us in verse 32 and 33, don't mingle with people who don't. Stand firm. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. There's not a more important command in this book to a believer in the church age. When should I give myself fully? Sunday morning, between here and here? Always, always, always. The message and the apologetics and the truth of God's word have no power if they don't see a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this magnificent plan. we just read Paul's writings we understand from Adam to the new heaven and the new earth how much pain we've caused you first of all how difficult it was for you to give free will to selfish beings knowing what it would cost your son but as Paul says thank be to, thanks be to God that he is you father have given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ he is worthy of being our Lord he is worthy of being our Savior and he is worthy of being our prophet our priest and our king and we thank you for him in Jesus name